right, go ahead and get your Bibles and go to the book of James. Um, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament. It's towards the end. It's a really short book, so don't be ashamed of having to use your table of contents if you need it. If you don't have a Bible, uh, now is a perfect time to get one, and we have free Bibles. They're our gift to you in our lobby, so please grab one on your way out um, and, and use it and read it and find life in it. Um, if you've never read this book before, it is a short book, and at the same time, it is one of the most intense books in the whole Bible. Uh, it's a book that can be a little intimidating because it, a lot of it feels like a punch to the gut. Um, and yet at the same time, it contains some of the most loved and some of the most quoted verses in the entire New Testament. Uh, today, we're just going to look at the introduction. One verse, and it's the greeting. And all I want to do today as we prepare for this book is set it up free in a way that shows you what it's all about. We just finished a series on the Bible where I was trying to give you some, some best practices for interpreting the word and finding meaning in the word. And I'm gonna demonstrate a lot of those things that I showed you last month in the way that we uh, lead into this book. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read this first verse. We're gonna answer some questions. We're gonna go to the table and celebrate the cross. We're gonna sing and then we're gonna go to baptism and celebrate the resurrection. It's going to be amazing. So James chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get into it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. All right. That is the introduction to the book of James. And there are some big questions if we want to really know what this book is all about, what it means for you and what it means for me today. We need to answer some questions about what was going on back then. Again, this is Bible Study 101. There are three questions that I want to answer. First, who was James? Second, who is he writing to? And then third, why is he writing this book? The first two we're going to answer pretty quickly. And then the last question is actually going to be broken up into three main reasons. So that's where we're going today. All right, who was James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. James was the second oldest, and many scholars believe that there were at least seven brothers and sisters uh, in, in Jesus' family. So you have Jesus, who's Mary's son, but not Joseph's, and then James is right after him. He's the second born. Any second born children in this room today? Okay, so I don't know if this is true of all of you. I have a twin who was the second born, and um, he's two minutes younger than me. And at least for him, the secondborn syndrome was a real thing. Um, maybe it is for you too, but basically it's like a competitive drive of always trying to catch up to the older, better, more mature. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just joking. Okay. Um, could you imagine what it would have been like for James to be the secondborn? Like if there was ever a secondborn syndrome in the history of the world. For James to have to grow up with an older brother who happened to be God incarnate. Um, Jesus obeyed all the time, perfectly. And you know, like, you don't. And when, you're, when your siblings obey, there's something inside of you that resents them. Because it actually makes you look worse. It makes you look like you really are. When his mom called, he came. Um, he showed up for dinner on time. He always performed at 100%. Didn't matter what the task was, with a great attitude. Like he was whistling while he worked all the time. Doesn't matter what the chore was. He was the kind of kid 
go to the temple and teach the teachers the law. And everyone would just be gathered around like, who is this kid? This is amazing. And everyone's like, teach us more. And, and James is probably over there like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's Jesus again, getting all the spotlight. James was not a fan of Jesus. Let's put it like that. He calls himself the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you had better believe that James did not start out like that. In fact, when Jesus first started his ministry, James and his other brothers and sisters showed up and tried to forcibly take Jesus off of the circuit and get him to shut up. Mark 3 tells us that they thought he had gone insane. They were not fans of Jesus. But then, if you follow James' life, you skip all the way to Acts. So in all of the Gospels, James, not a fan of Jesus. All of a sudden in Acts, James is a leader of the church. All of a sudden in Acts 15, he's at this Jerusalem council and he's there with Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles. And if you've ever read Acts 15, you know that he stands up in the midst of these heavy hitters and he gives the final word and it just shuts down the conference. Everyone's like, James has spoken. Let's go home. He's a leader in the church. He's got the final say. Then he shows up again in Acts 21. And again in Acts 21, the apostle Paul, who wrote most of our New Testament, is listening to him and taking advice from him and even submitting to him and his elders. Church historians tell us that James was one of the most righteous people to have ever lived. That his, he was so righteous and so just and so pious, so to speak, that even his enemies respected him. Um, they called him James the Just or James the Righteous. His friends called him Camel Knees. Isn't that funny? That's in church history. That's in Eusebius. They called him Camel Knees because he prayed so much and he was always on his knees that his knees became callous and hard and swollen and they looked like Camel Knees. And so that was his nickname. Hey, there's Camel Knees. Like, wow, okay. Eventually, though, if you study the life of James, in spite of his character, in spite of his reputation, in spite of his, his, of his faithfulness, his enemies grew to despise him so much. And it wasn't because of him. It was because of the fact that he wouldn't shut up about Jesus, the older brother that he was originally trying to get to shut up. And so eventually they decided to kill him. They threw him off the top of the temple. They beat him to death with clubs. And so 29 years after the execution of his older brother, James was killed for refusing to recant his faith in him and his loyalty to him. So that's a brief nutshell of the guy who wrote this book. The big question is, how did the guy who went from being a skeptic of Christ end up being his servant? Because how does he introduce himself in this book? He says, James, not a younger brother, of Jesus, not James, a leader in the church, not James, the guy who told Paul what to do. James, a servant of God and of the Kurios, the Lord, the King, Jesus Christ. How did he go from skeptic to servant? What changed in his life? The answer is the resurrection. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, we see this moment of transformation. It's so powerful. So I want to read it before we get into what he's going to say. This is his testimony. 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that, we, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Cephas or however you want to say it, and then to the twelve. Then 
He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. That's the moment of transformation for James. Jesus is insane. He's the older brother that I can never catch up to or keep up with that I really wish would just go hang himself to he's the son of God. He was who he said he was. He's the king of the universe. He's the creator and sustainer of all that ever is and all that ever was, and he's the Messiah that I've been waiting for, and so that's the moment. He saw the resurrected Christ. I can't even begin to imagine what that meeting must have, must have been like. I would assume it was a lot of tears. I would assume it was a lot of hugs. I would assume that it was a lot of apologies from James and a lot of forgiveness from Jesus. You didn't know. I just remember his, his words on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think he was saying that to James. I forgive you. You didn't know what you were doing. And from that moment on, he's a servant. Okay, so that's a brief biography of who the author of this book is. Second, let's move on to this, this other question. Who is he writing to? Look back at verse one. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the key there of trying to figure out, because there's debate about this, um, who James is writing to, the key there is this idea that there's 12 tribes and it's in a dispersion. The Greek word for dispersion literally means to sow or to scatter. It's the idea of like in, in, in lawn season, for all you grass people out there, you, you get your, your little wheelbarrow thing and you put your seed in there and you open it up and it just scatters all over the place and you hope that it takes root so that something will grow from it. That's what the Greek word for dispersion means. It's like just sowing and scattering out. And so these 12 tribes are people that God has scattered that God is sowing among the nations, that they would be his people in the midst of all of these other peoples and that they would draw all of those nations to God. Now, there's also a connection here because there's 12 tribes. And what do you think of immediately when you think of 12 tribes? You think of Israel. In the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's an intentional connection here that the dispersion isn't just random people and it's not even just unbelievers, but it's actually the people of God. There's a connection back to the people of God. They're being dispersed. So in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel get divided. 10 become Israel, two become Judah, as we saw in our study of Daniel. And Israel gets scattered as the Assyrian Empire conquers them, and Judah gets scattered as the Babylonian Empire conquers them. And there's a, there's a scattering of the people of God in the nations. In the New Testament, this word is used three times for the people of God. And every single time it has to do with them scattering or leaving with the gospel. Think about Acts chapter 8. If you know your church history, if you've ever read Acts chapter 8, you know that this is when Saul starts ravaging the church and he's persecuting the church and everyone in Jerusalem all of a sudden is dispersing and they're scattering and they take the gospel to Samaria, which was part of the Great Commission, and they leave from Samaria to the surrounding areas all the way to the ends of the earth. So James is writing to the people of God that are dispersed, that are scattered, that are sown all over the world. That's really important because if he's writing to unbelievers, 
our interpretation and application of this text changes significantly. If he's writing to the people of God, that means he's writing to you and he's writing to me. And we've got to do something with this. Every single Sunday, we're going to show up and figure out what this requires of us. And so I would say that, yes, he is writing to believers. And it's so funny. Some commentators say it's so vague and so ambiguous. If he had sent this letter out in the first century, it would have been returned to sender because there's no recipient. It's just to the people of God scattered all over the world. And so this book was really meant for everyone in every place, in every season, in every century. It's for you and me. It was written in the 40s, but it's for you and me today in the 21st century. Okay, you know who James is now, in a nutshell. You know who he's writing to, it's you. And then now third, why was James writing this book? This is where we're gonna camp out for the next several minutes. Three main goals or purposes behind this letter that I wanna highlight. If you're taking notes, you could call these the three main reasons that James wrote this incredible letter. First, James is meant to be an invitation into happiness. Now, there are 108 verses in this letter, and yet in spite of that, there are 59 commands. So you do the math, that's every other verse is a command. And it's a law, it's a requirement or something like that. And it's easy to come to a book like this and see Nothing but a list of do's and don'ts and thou shalt's and thou shalt nots. But as we just saw in our study of the Bible, and if you weren't here for the study of the Bible, you missed out and you're going to have to go watch it again because we're building on that. But it's okay. Welcome. This is your first time. If you skipped, I forgive you. Um, every single command in the Bible is nothing less than an invitation to happiness. Every single command. And, and I'm going to say this till I'm dead. And you're going to hear this till you leave. Don't leave. Um, every single command in the Bible is an invitation to happiness. It's an invitation to live life the way it was designed to be lived. Elizabeth Elliot once wrote about how, how much she and her husband, Jim, they, they used to live by the ocean. This is obviously uh, before all this stuff happened. They used to live by the ocean and they loved watching sailboats in the summer and they would just sit out on the beach and they would watch all of the sailboats. And she described the whole scene like this. She said, I love the summer when we could watch hundreds of sailboats skimming along the horizon with the most wonderful freedom. But those sailboats would not have the freedom to skim along the horizon and stay on top of the water if they were not obedient to the laws of the wind and wave and if they had not been constructed in obedience to certain laws, such as the ratio between the beam and the keel. Again, we talked about this so much in our study of, of the Bible, but it needs to be restated. If you want to live in freedom... And if you want to experience deep and lasting happiness, you need to believe that the law of God was given to you to guide you into that. Remember, you never break God's law. You just break yourself on it. But when you obey God's law, you live life and life more abundantly. Freedom is not the absence of constraints. It's the result of the right constraints. Happiness is not the absence of rules. It's the fruit of good rules. And so Hannah Smith put it like this in her classic, classic book, The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. She said, perfect obedience would be perfect happiness if only we had perfect confidence in the person we are obeying. 
Perfect obedience would be perfect happiness if only we had perfect confidence in the person we are obeying. We see this idea spelled out over and over and over again in the book of James. In fact, I think if you were going to find one verse that could sum up the book of James, it would be verse 25 of chapter 1. And that verse is all about obedience leading to happiness. Look at it with me. James 1.25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty or the law of freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all of his doing. See those three really important ideas? Law, obedience, and happiness. It's a straight line. If you want happiness, you've got to obey the law of God because his law leads to life. The one who looks into the perfect law, who actually obeys it, finds freedom and is blessed in everything. Jesus put it this way, and this is another thing, just kind of a side note. Everything that James says is basically an echo of Jesus. It's the younger brother thing. He's just always going back to Jesus. So Jesus said this in John 8, verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, make you free. So you want freedom? Don't get rid of the rules. Don't come up with your own truth and say that yours is good for you and you know mine is good for me and everyone else is good for them. Know the truth. And who is the truth? It's Jesus. John 13, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That word for life is zoe. That literally means life and life to the fullest. Jesus is saying, I am life to the fullest. So follow my truth and you'll get me and you'll get the joy and the happiness that come with me. Guys, freedom and happiness are the results of continuing in the word and obeying the law. And since James is saturated with the law, it is an invitation into those experiences. Now, I know our temptation is to open up the book of James and we think as Americans, this is legalism. And we think, oh man, more rules, more burden, more weight, more checklists that I've got to knock out. But it's not that at all. It's an invitation to imitate and enjoy the person of Jesus. Obedience itself, and you can write this down. Obedience is not the goal. Obedience is the pathway to the goal. And if you get that mixed up, your life's going to get mixed up. Obedience is not the goal. If obedience is the goal, then the Pharisees accomplished it because they obey better than anyone else. Obedience is not the goal. Obedience is the pathway because what is the goal? The goal is to see the face of Jesus, to experience the presence of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps and enjoy life in him. So obedience is the pathway to that. Doing the word, applying the promises, Appropriating the power is all a result of obedience. Okay, that's what James is all about. We're going to unpack that a lot more in the weeks to come. I'm giving you summaries. If I give away everything today, you won't come back. I'm trying to whet the appetite. Okay. Second, James is meant to be a call to action. Now, in other words, it's not just meant to be an invitation because it is that. First and foremost, Bible is promise. Second, it's law. 
First and foremost, it's an invitation. Second, though, it is meant to be an evaluation. And this is where it becomes like a, um, a massive punch to the gut more often than not. I mean, James is brutal. He does not mess around. It's not just a guide into how to experience and enjoy life in Christ. It is a test to see if you actually have that life in you. So James constantly saying things like, this is what real faith looks like. This is what true religion looks like. This is what it really means to love God. If you think you follow Jesus and you're not doing these things, you're deceiving yourself. You might think you're good with God, James would say, but don't be deceived. Let me put your faith to the test and let me show you who you actually are and where you actually stand. Guys, how many people think they're good with God and aren't? How many of us have ever been there? I mean, in the South, this is our, our predicament. In the North, it's easy. Either to love Jesus or you hate him. In the South, everyone's a God-fearing, freedom-loving Christian. I went to my first ever NASCAR race last week. <laughs> it's a fresh in my brain. Um, so uh, the Nashes, I don't see them right now. I don't even know if they're in here right now, but she works for NASCAR. She hooked us up with VIP passes, got to go into the pit, gave us some sweet tickets. I've, I've, I've never watched NASCAR in my life, um, but my father-in-law is diehard. Like he's been to hundreds of races and he's trying to get my son into it. And I'm just like, oh, you know what? If you try to stop them, they'll do it out of rebellion. So I'm just like, yeah, it's the best, you know? And, um, so they're, they're pumped about it. I went to Walmart and I bought a, uh, I bought a cutoff tank top that said, let freedom rock with an American flag electric guitar. And I got some cutoff jorts. And, um, and, I, and that was, I, I was going for the full experience. Those two things cost me $13. How did I not know Walmart sold clothes? Like, I will be there again. <laughs> Amazing deals um, to be had at Walmart. So uh, I thought it was going to be funny. I thought it was going to stand out. You know, I'm like, it's a joke. And I thought my father-in-law would laugh, and I'd Instagram it and everything. And I'm not, I don't even do Instagram, but I was like, I'm Instagramming this thing. I show up, and I'm like, I, I look like the most normal person here. Like, <laughs> this isn't even funny. I'm just like, I'm very well dressed right now. Um, so I didn't Instagram it. Um, anyways, it was uh, a fascinating experience for all kinds of, all kinds of reasons. I'm still processing it. Um, the thing about this NASCAR race though, we had an absolute blast, absolute blast. Um, so thank you, Nashes. Keep giving me tickets. This is my point. Um, the thing about this whole thing that I'm still processing is that it was this weird mixture of like God and religion and rock and roll and, and sex and cars. And it was the weirdest experience of my life. Um, so it started out with a prayer. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like no kneeling, you know. It was like the other leagues are like kind of like, you know, social justice, Black Lives Matter. Not this one. They were praying at this one. I was like, this is interesting. I did not expect this. And, and the guy's praying uh, and just thanking God for his prosperity that he's given us and for our safety and for our freedom and, and all of these, like, you know, catchy words that would imply that God likes us. Um, 
And then after he prays, and I'm, I'm just noticing like everyone's got their hats off and their hats are like over their hearts and they're somber and they're serious and they're like into this prayer. And, and then after, as soon as the prayer's done, uh, some dude on the bagpipe shows up and, and he plays Amazing Grace and everyone is like quiet. I mean, and everyone's taken in these bagpipes and I'm like, what is this? Are we at church? Like, we prayed, we're singing Amazing Grace. Some people are, you know, swaying back and forth. Um, didn't see any hands up. But um, and, and I'm like, man, we're, we're at church right now. This is, this is, this is kind of cool. It's odd, but kind of cool. Um, it was reverent. It meant something. It was significant. And then as soon as the bagpipes were done, everything changed. Everything shifted. This WWE superstar which is like wrestling, another thing that um, we will prohibit in our home. Um, so that'll be his rebellion. Okay, we should allow it. So they don't rebel. I'm just joking. Okay, um, she gets out there, and it's like a totally different vibe than church. I'll just leave it at that. And, uh, and she yells out, start your engines. And then ACDC blasts over the speakers and everybody pulls out the beer again and the party commences. And when I say commences, I mean continues because the party had been going on for hours and then there was this moment of silence and prayer and amazing grace and Jesus and then the party commenced again. And, and I, I couldn't help, and I'm still processing this right now because it's my first event. I don't know what to make of it. I'm still working through it. Um, but to me, it reminded me so much of Israel. It, it reminded me so much of the people of God in the Old Testament who had all of these parties and festivals and celebrations who just assumed that God was for them and assumed that everything good that was happening in their lives was a sign that God loved them and that God wanted to prosper them and that God cared about their safety and their freedom and, and all of these kinds of things. And, and they lived as total pagans but they just assumed God was good with them. And, and I, was, I was looking at this, and I'm like, I've never been in anything like this in my life, but if there's ever been an example of blasphemy, this is it. This is it. Bearing the name of God in vain. It's easy for me to see that in other people, but let me tell you something right now. I do the same thing. You do the same thing. We presume as if God is for us. And then we do all of these other things and demonstrate that we aren't loyal to him. So the book of James is a punch to the gut because he wants to expose this in us. Here's a summary of the book. Again, I'm not going to go too deep because i got to save some. And you're not even coming back next week, I can tell. Um, verse 116, he says, don't be deceived about where you stand with God. Why? Because we're good at deceiving ourselves. We're really good at seeing the sin in other people and not in our own hearts. Don't be deceived. Verse 126, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, that person's religion is worthless. If anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, that person's religion is worthless. In chapter 2, verse 14, what, is, what good is it to say you have faith if you don't put your faith into practice? Ver, chapter 2, verse 19, you say you believe in God, but so do the demons. So does it really matter if you say you believe in God? Chapter 3, verse 10, you bless God, but then you curse people, so your blessing means nothing. 
Chapter four, verse four, you say you love God, but you love the world. Verse 16 and 17, you say you love God, but you're arrogant, you're disobedient, you live in luxury and you're self-indulgent. It's as if James is trying to hold up a mirror to us and say, this is what you really look like. This is who you really are. This is where you really stand. And if you want to experience and enjoy life in Christ, let's just first make sure you've got the life in you. That you're not making assumptions that aren't based on reality. Evaluate whether or not you believe what you claim to believe. I read a story this past week. It made me laugh because I could relate so much. It was about this guy who worked at a front desk in a little hotel in the middle of nowhere. And I laughed because when I was in college, I worked at a front desk at a hotel in the middle of nowhere, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. It's a suburb of Scranton, the middle of nowhere. And I laughed at it because he's talking about how it didn't matter like how hard you tried and how great you were at your job. People were just going to be mad at you. Okay? Like they were just going to come and, and spit in your face and yell at you and scream at you. Um, if, if they couldn't figure out how to fi fix the remote or use the remote, it was your fault. And you'd have to go up to the room and, and fix the remote blankets and towels. It's your fault. Bring them to them. And on and on it went. If the coffee wasn't fresh, it was on you. And so this guy had this idea. He had an epiphany one moment as this lady was yelling at him. Have you ever had those, those moments where you kind of step outside your body? And, and it's, like a, it's like slow motion. It's like a movie scene where all of the sound fades and, and, you know, somebody's yelling in your face, but it's like, you know what I'm talking about? You've seen these movies. Maybe you've never experienced it. That's what's going on with this guy. And, and he's like kind of out of body. And in that moment, he's like, he starts to laugh inside because he's like, she looks like a monkey because she was flailing her arms and she was yelling and she was spitting at him. And so then he had this great idea. It was an epiphany. He was like, I can see her, but she can't see herself. But if I buy a giant mirror and I just hang it right behind the front desk, then they'll be able to see themselves. And so he hung up this mirror behind the front desk, giant mirror. Guess what stopped? All the people screaming and spitting at him and flailing their arms and looking like crazy people. Guys, that's what the book of James is meant to be for you and me. It is meant to be a mirror that shows us who we really are, what we really look like, where we really stand. And the goal of the mirror is to get us to actually do something about it. It is a call to action. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Don't just be a fan of Jesus, but follow in his footsteps. And again, I can't give away too much because I got to preach this sermon in like two weeks. But when you look at yourself in the mirror... Don't just see yourself acting crazy and then be like, well, I guess that's okay. Do something about it. Change. That's the second purpose of this book. Call us to action. Which leads to the final reason James is writing this, this letter, and that is the good news. It's to remind us of the gospel, and this is really what's going to underpin everything. 59 commands in this letter. And while they are invitations to joy, they're still daunting. They're all meant to be obeyed so that we grow in our imitation of Christ, our enjoyment of Christ. 59 laws that if we follow them will lead us to our deepest happiness. They'll lead us to Christ. And yet, while these commands are both an invitation and a call to action, I hope you know that there is not a single person in this room
that can obey all of these commands. We are not law keepers. We're law breakers. James wants us to see that. And so in chapter two, he echoes his older brother's Sermon on the Mount. And he reminds us again that if we have failed in one of these laws, we've failed in all of them. This is the hardest line in the whole book. This is the harshest line in the whole book. But it leads us to something good. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of it all. Tame your tongue, get rid of worldliness, care for the widow, provide for the orphan, feed the poor, fight for justice, persevere through trials, pray with faith, get rid of partiality and jealousy and bitterness and selfishness and pride. Those are the works that will prove your faith, plus like 50 others. Those are the actions that will demonstrate whether or not your religion is true and you actually belong to Jesus. And oh, by the way, if you failed in one of those things, you failed in all of them. How many people do you know who presume that they are good with God, that their faith is real because they don't do some of the things that God has told them not to do? Like they've never killed anyone, they've never cheated on their spouse, they've never stolen from their employer, anything like that. And so they put all of those things in the good column, and that's hopefully going to outweigh all of the things in the bad column. They aren't doing all of these bad things that God told them not to do. Anybody know anybody like that? Of course. Or maybe from a more positive perspective, how many people do you know who presume that they're the real deal because they do some of the things that God has told them to do? I can think of a few things I do really well and really easily. Maybe you can too. Maybe you really do care about the poor. Maybe you really do fight for justice. Maybe you really do pray with faith. And so your good column is heavy too, hopefully. At least heavier than the the bad column and all the things that you're not doing. How many people do you know like that? And when I say how many people... Do you know like that? I mean, how many of you know yourself? (laughs) Because we all do this. How many of us do this? Yes, my tongue is a raging fire, and I cut people down to their face, mostly behind their backs. Yes, I love to bless God, but I curse people too, even if it's under my breath. Yes, I'm, I'm I'm a raging fire, but at least I care for the poor. So you know what? I think that's more important. That balances it out. Just going to focus on the good one. Yeah, I love the world. Oh man, I indulge in it every time I get the chance. It's so fun. And I know Ben keeps telling me that it's not lasting fun, but I don't believe him, so I'm just going to keep doing this over and over and over again. I love it. It's regular. It's every Thursday through Saturday night. But I also really care about justice. I care a lot about it. I pray about it. I I volunteer at the nonprofit down the street. James is echoing Jesus when he says, the law does not work like that. The law is a zero-sum game. Which means that the moment you get one little notch in your bad column, 
everything gets erased in the good column and all there is is failure. I told you it was the hardest line in the book. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5 because let's, I'm going to show you he's, he's, he's copying Jesus. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. Man, you would love it if I would teach you to relax, right? Oh, you would love it if I would just get up here and be like, listen, just relax on some of these. It's not a big deal. Anybody who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Nobody obeyed the law like the scribes and Pharisees. Nobody memorized it and read it and studied it and practiced it like they did. So Jesus' point is like nobody's getting in. The book of James is an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a massive punch to the gut. Guys, if you don't feel the tension in this moment, it's because you don't know the depth of your sin. You should feel tension right now. If you don't feel the weight of your inability to work yourself into the kingdom of heaven, what I just read to you means nothing. The book of James isn't just meant to invite us into happiness and to call us to obedience. You can write this down. It is meant to expose the depth of our need that we cannot do this. So chapter 2, verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Okay, so that's the bad news. And good news that's really good always comes after bad news that's really bad. So what's the good news? Look at verse 11. Because verse 10 is not the end. He said, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of freedom. Listen to this. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, you will fail, and yes, you will fall. How many of you failed this past week? How many of you fell? Yeah. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How many of you stumbled this past week and disobeyed this past week and ran to lesser gods this past week? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, there will be times every single day when you do not measure up, when you look at the mirror and you see something that is not good. And you say to yourself, I wish I was better. There will be days when the good that you want to do goes ignored and the evil that you despise gets all the love. Maybe you just had one yesterday. 
The gospel message in the book of James is this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the gospel according to James. You and I are not saved by our works. We are saved by the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We don't get access to God by obeying the law. We get access to God because Jesus obeyed it for us. You know, if he had failed in one of the smallest commands, everything would be done. The whole plan would be off. Rescue mission, game over. If he had failed in the most insignificant one of those commands, he would have failed in all of them. But he didn't. Day after day, week after week, month after month, the devil was pounding him with temptation. Oh, man. If you would just deviate from the path, just like one iota, one iota, one look, one taste, one little concession. Day after day, the devil was trying to get him to fall. You know what it's like to be tempted. You know how hard it is to say no. You know the suffering that it entails, right? Jesus experienced that minute by minute, day after day for his entire life, and yet without sin. He obeyed perfectly every single command, and now we have access to God have you ever asked yourself, why in the world does God save us and then not just cleanse us of all of the old desires? And why doesn't just purge all of the flesh and all of the appetites and all of... Have you ever wondered that? That has been a cause of frustration in my life. I'll just be honest with you. Um, more often than not, I'm confessing the same sin every Sunday, the same like five sins. I'm sure you are too. That's frustrating to me. Um, because in my mind, I'm like, oh, God, you must be so sick of me. Like, I'm still confessing this again. Like, you heard this last week. You must be so annoyed at me right now. You must be so tired of me coming to you. Why didn't you, why didn't you just, and I, and I put the blame on him. I'm like, why didn't you just take this from me? Anybody ever done that? Just me? Okay. Um, I mean, I was talking to Caroline. She just read this book. This was several years ago. and I don't remember what the book was. But there was a chapter in the book that gave her such great insight into this, and then it gave me insight into this, and then it became a lens through which I was able to, to read a lot of these amazing passages in the Bible. This is what's so strange and what, what is so paradoxical and what I would say is so beautiful about the Christian life. And that's the fact that while we are called to obey, and while our obedience enhances our happiness and it deepens our intimacy with Christ and our joy in him, get this, because this is the paradox. It is only when our minds fully grasp the mercy of God and our hearts are fully consumed by his love and his compassion and his patience and his kindness toward us that our happiness becomes transcendent, that our happiness becomes complete, you see the paradox there? How do you grow in your understanding of mercy? You need it. Over and over and over and over and over again. Minute by minute, hour after hour, day by day, confessing sin every single week. Here I am again, God. And what do you come face to face with again? Your need and his mercy. 
So what would happen if he got rid of the old desires and the old appetites and if he just purged you of the flesh and you never wrestled with anything and you never struggled with anything and and this wasn't a battle? What would happen? Well, you wouldn't need him, first of all. You wouldn't know mercy and you wouldn't know compassion and you wouldn't know kindness and you wouldn't know patience and you wouldn't know his love. And so this is the great paradox. It is in our moments of failure. It is in our moments of failure. When we face ourselves in the mirror and we see that we don't measure up, that we are confronted with our desperate need, our our endless inability, and then once again we are driven to the foot of the cross and mercy is showered over us. His breakers, the waves crash over us and consume us. In that moment we get his forgiveness and we see again what it means that we love him because he first loves us. Guys, that's every single minute of every day. The reason that you love him now And the reason that you'll love him in an hour is because he first loved you and he keeps loving you. He keeps pursuing and chasing you. And so it's it's this crazy paradox. In our obedience, our delight is enhanced. In our obedience, our experience of Christ is, is deepened. In our obedience, we know more and more what it means to live life to the fullest. And yet... The pinnacle of Christian maturity, as Paul would pray in Ephesians 3, is that we would comprehend the love of Christ, which is incomprehensible, and that we would be filled with the fullness of God, which comes as a result of that comprehension. That does not happen without our need for mercy. You following me? So this is the gospel in the book of James. It is going to be a punch to the gut over and over and over again. It's going to be a call to action. It's going to be you looking in the mirror and being like, whoa, didn't realize I I had a massive blackhead right there on my cheek. I need to get rid of that. It's going to be a call to action. It's going to be an invitation to joy. But ultimately, it is meant to drive you to Jesus, to remind you of the gospel. So with that being said, I cannot wait to plumb its depths with you for the next two months. I think we've got nine weeks on the the schedule and we're going to get after it. You ready? Would you stand? I'm going to invite you to bow your head where you are. And I know I just gave you a summary, but even now the Spirit's doing something in your heart because His Word was preached. And every time His Word goes out, it, it does what it does. It doesn't return void. And so the Spirit is telling you something right now that you need to confess. The Spirit is telling you something right now that you need to believe. This is a call to action right now. So I'm going to invite you to bow where you are and pray and confess. Ask the Spirit for his help. Submit again to his will in your life. And after that, we'll go to the table and celebrate the cross together.